Gentrification is not only coming, it's there. And so in order to fight the ill effects, which is being displaced, we think that one of the, the best ways to fight it is to help existing businesses to grow that will hire within and from the community. Diversity of ideas is harder than it looks. Welcome to Innovation for All, conversations on the social impact of innovation with your host, Shana Alkvist. Welcome to the Innovation for All podcast. I'm your host, Shana Alkvist. In this episode, I spoke with Cassie Betts. Cassie started her career as a fashion designer, but when she saw firsthand how outdated the technologies for manufacturing clothing were, she decided to take action. In 2013, she founded District 2, a technology company that streamlines the manufacturing process by connecting brands and designers with factories. Since then, Cassie has also founded Made in South LA, or MISLA, an urban economic accelerator to bring stimulus to her community. Forbes once called her the woman turning South LA into startup land. But as you'll hear here, that's just the second half of Cassie's story. We'll discuss how she went from coding her first computer game at nine to being homeless at 19 and how she turned all that around. This episode is a little different in that it may, dare I say, inspire you to get to work. But we also cover topics like how do you protect the poor from being displaced through gentrification? Why Cassie believes more money should be spent on technology boot camps and more. A quick warning, this episode does include explicit language, but it also includes some difficult topics about Cassie's past that may be uncomfortable for some listeners. Please use your discretion. And with that, Cassie Betts. Cassie Betts, welcome to the Innovation for All podcast. Hi, Shana. How are you? Good, thanks. So I was hoping we could kick this off by talking a little bit about your early days as a, a budding entrepreneur. Your dad had an apartment business growing up, and it seems like your involvement with that may have been the beginning of sowing that entrepreneurial seed. Can you tell me a little bit about how you guys worked together and how that yeah. led you to where you are today? Not in a dramatic fashion at all. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I kind of hate to admit it because technically my dad was like not a good person. I mean, that's a whole nother podcast. But if I'm honest, everything I know about entrepreneurialism and tech, it started with him. And um, we had an apartment business. And at one time, literally, I think we had like 300 units in this like town in Pontiac, Illinois, because we had maybe 10 buildings that we owned. And then he bought a trailer park, a whole trailer park with like 120 (laughs) trailers. So um, it was kind of crazy. I was 11, you know, and running the office. I remember being in the manager's office and they come in and say, oh, you know, my plumbing is broken and I need the manager. And I'm like, I mean, I am the manager. They're like, what? (laughs) um, Oh, you are the manager? I was the manager. Like I'm 11. 11 year old girl. They're like, uh... Yeah. And they're like, no, we need an adult. And I was like, well, this is what you got. But I handled it, you know, just like any adult would. I called the plumber, you know, I, I, I took care of it. I was always, I budgeted and balanced the books. We had spreadsheets. I did that, answered the phone. I mean, I was like a, an adult and it was, it was a bit much, you know, for an 11 year old. Like I don't do that to that extent with my kids now who are 10 and 15, but I do, we have moments where they need to be adults. And they need to, you know, <laughs> they need to go hard. But I let them be kids, unlike my father. <laughs> well, it sounds like, you know, your dad also, aside from the work that he was do- having you do and maybe perhaps modeling this idea of being an entrepreneur, it sounds like he also maybe played a role in you learning to code. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. So I wanted to play computer games. I'm going to totally date myself, but I wanted to play computer games back in the day when I was a kid. And the only way I could play them was if I programmed them into the computer myself. So he like, there was this big book of Pascal. I had to learn how to code um, in Pascal and program the games into the computer. And I remember the only one I can clearly remember doing, probably was my first one, um, was Wheel of Fortune. And it took me the whole summer 
to like program this whole game, but it was so gratifying in the end. And then I kind of went on my own and learned little things about how the code works and I can do changes that I wasn't taught, but just based on my knowledge of how it all works. Um, It was cool, but I didn't stick with it at the time because it wasn't cool to be a computer nerd back in the 90s at all. And did you have um, brothers and sisters that got to benefit from you creating computer games from scratch or, or was it just you? Oh, did they even play it? I honestly, let's see, what was I, nine? I was nine. So my sister's three years younger. So she was six. So I don't think she was that into it. Now she was more into dolls and stuff. She wasn't really playing Wheel of Fortune with me. So no, they did not benefit. (laughs) I think that's such an interesting approach too, though, because I hear about, so I personally don't code and I know people who do. And it seems like a lot of them had the same sort of experience of you is at some point when they were younger, they wanted something or wanted to do something. And it was this idea of doing it to completion, like building something that you could then use or interact with, that that's the fun part versus like when I've taken computer classes, it's like coding classes, it's, you're not really focused on the outcome. You're focused on some granular incremental change that doesn't actually have any joy in it. (laughs) Exactly. And I think that that needs to be kind of changed with how we teach and how we train, like how we train in our boot camps. it's project-based. So that is something that, yeah, everybody who learned, they just wanted to build something or, you know, hack something, you know, they're just super geeks and (laughs) really into it. Not thinking about like career and money and, you know, what we think of now when we're taking these bootcamp classes. So I think it helps to just be into it and enjoy it and do it because you want. Well, I mean, I I almost liken it to if you were learning piano, it's it's like practicing scales or just trying to learn a song. And it's like maybe practicing scales is technically correct, but learning the song is way more fun. So much more fun. Yeah. Probably done incorrectly, but more students would probably stick around. Yeah, (laughs) probably incorrect. True. Right. Well, so, I mean, it sounds like in many ways you had lots of strong kernels early on that could help you become an entrepreneur later on. Where did things go wrong? I've, I've read that when you were a teenager, you ended up being homeless in LA. How did that happen? Okay. Uh, so I said my father was a bad man. Long story short, we lived in Hawaii at the time. We turned him in, my sister and I. And then, you know, he was a breadwinner. So things got hard. I had to, I was, I was 18. So things got hard. I had to be the breadwinner. Um, actually, let me back up. Before we turned him in, he and I got into it and I lived with him and that's when he kicked me out and I became homeless. And so that was in Hawaii the first time that I became homeless. And that was about six months. And from there, I actually became friends with like the people of the night, <laughs> the questionable characters of the night, as I like to call them, um, who actually turned out to be pretty cool, like uh, pimps, drug dealers, prostitutes be honest with you, kind of took me in and had my back. I was known as the square. They knew I was super smart. I actually put on some shows, um, like fashion shows, comedy shows with uh, money that I raised from some of these questionable characters of the night. So that was like my entrepreneurialism kicking in like, hey, you got to survive and I'm not going to walk the streets for you guys. But what I will do is I'll take your money and triple it, you know, and that's what I did. So I'm not really upset about that whole experience of, you know, hitting rock bottom and being homeless um, because I'm completely and utterly fearless. I have no fear when it comes to business. Oh my God. Well, I mean, how could you after? That sounds like such a, to say do or die in a literal way. (laughs) Yeah. And imagine the sexual harassment I went through. I mean, come on. There is sexual harassment in the workforce today, all over, all around, constantly, or just inappropriate things that you know we deal with as women in tech but because of my background it's something that I can very easily I don't let it slide but I handle it gosh I feel like you even at some point told me I feel like I remember so you and I talked previously in preparation for this episode you mentioned using this sort of explicit calling out as a way to identify you know, remaining forms of bias in these more professional interactions. And I feel like you mentioned maybe that sometimes people don't realize you're going to be maybe the keynote speaker or something like that. Oh, yeah. We were talking about like sexism um, and racism, or even if it's, you know, unconscious. 
Once I was at an event and a gentleman asked me to get him a coffee. And <laughs> so I was like, oh, what makes him think I'm the coffee girl? You know, so I got it. I literally just went, I got it. Coffee, cream, sugar, you know, I was like, okay, I got it. I handed it to him. And they were like, you know, welcome to the stage, uh, CEO of District 2, Cassie Betts. You know, when I walked to the stage, I kind of gave this look like, yeah, motherfucker, I see you. You know, <laughs> like, watch me now. You know, and his face was just like bright red. So oh that type of thing is what I do. I don't get mad. I just, I usually let someone else check the person. Or I, um, like when someone thought I was the secretary, I didn't say anything. But then as I started to speak, you could see the paleness come over their face as they realized I wasn't the secretary, but I was the CEO. So that type of thing. I just, I don't even combat it. Like many times I don't combat it because it will, they'll get shut down. It's funny. It almost sounds like you you take those situations, which could be you know really awkward or uncomfortable, or in many cases demeaning or deflating, mm-hmm. and almost see them in a sort of a humorous way. It's comical, really. I mean, it's comical that you could be so ignorant that you would just assume that the black girl is the coffee girl, and so I don't need to check you because they'll check themselves. I haven't experienced just blatant out and out, you know, name calling racism or sexism working in the tech industry, maybe, you know, especially being here in California, everybody's so liberal and inclusive and all that, but it's, it happens kind of unconscious bias happens for sure. Well, so, you know, you had this upbringing growing up, you seem to leverage your homelessness, if that's a great way to put it. (laughs) You really leveraged your homelessness, Cassie. (laughs) Do you know, but I mean, it sounds like you really applied the skills you learned in, again, the do or die way. How did you go from there? You know, I, I could imagine that going from homelessness back to quote unquote traditional life would be a real challenge. Um, Was that the case for you? I mean, yes, absolutely. You know, when you have no one and nothing, like Hawaii was, it's one thing to be homeless in Hawaii. Okay. Everybody's on vacation. Everybody's nice and giving. Everybody lets you stay at the place. I had friends. I had family. It wasn't as difficult. I probably slept outside twice, literally like once on a cardboard box at a Chevron gas station. With my best friend, Taiwan, shout out to Taiwan, if she's ever, <laughs> she listens to this at the time. And then once on a bus stop bench, I was with my mom because we got, her car got repoed and um, we had to sleep on the bus stop bench till the bus came. So there was that, but I had no place to go because my mom lived with my dad and I was kicked out. So still, I was able to figure it out. But um, in LA... I became homeless again. <laughs> Not a good track record. Yet. <laughs> but, no, again, well, because I came out here with like $500, like that was going to do it. You know, I mean, I was again, 19, you know, Hey, I can never judge 19 year olds. Cause I get it. You know, we don't do the smartest things when we're 19, but I was able to find the resources. So one word I think that like most friends and family use to describe me is resourceful because I will find the resources. There's always some resource somewhere to help you out. So I went to, I think at the time, I remember seeing all these commercials about the Covenant House. It was like 1-800-KEEP-DOWNING-9, you know? <laughs> I literally did that. I was like, nine 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 nine, you know? And it was the number to the Covenant House, which helped teens in trouble and crisis. And I was one. So I went there and they were like, kind of looked at me up and down and, I was always clean, even though I was homeless, I was always a clean kid. Um, and they were like, oh, you're not going to make it here. Like they told me I wasn't going to make it. And I was like, okay, if you say so, but what does that mean? And they said, okay, we're going to refer you to the Salvation Army, which had this independent living program. I don't know if they have it now, but let me tell you that saved my life because um, they had this program. And so you got to stay in the apartment for a year. You paid rent after you got your job. They were very lenient. Like you paid when you got a job and it was like $400 a month or something really low, which they put in a savings for you. And then they gave it all back to you at the end of the year for your first and last month's deposit on a new oh, place. Wow. It was like the coolest program. And do you know how many people, how many kids, you know, 18, 19 couldn't last and just fell off and... They didn't like, there was a lot of rules. You had to have a counselor. You had to, you know, have a therapist. You had to take all these classes. And I was like, guys, this is free rent. Are you serious? You know? <laughs> and I guess because they were like kids from like parent to 
to this program and they didn't really even have, they just did it like their life at home with their parent. Maybe their parent was abusive, which I get, but they didn't really have to be there. Like I had no, I had nothing. And once I came to California, so I thought it was the greatest thing ever. And I probably should be like their spokesperson because that saved my life. Salvation Army, independent living program. Definitely. Did you find the other components of that to be helpful? So, you know, you said that they had all the, it sounded pretty regimented. Um, The parts where we learned to like balance our checkbook was, I mean, I've been working since I was 11, you know, so no, that, that part was kind of a waste of my time, but I can see why it would be important to others who don't know how to balance a checkbook, don't understand how credit works, um, how to grocery shop, you know, just like kind of the basics of like turning, going from a kid to an adult. Again, I thought it was, it was kind of ridiculous for me, but I was like, okay, if this is what I got to do to have free rent, then so be it. And they even had like, cause at the Salvation Army, it was in Hollywood on Hollywood Boulevard. And my apartment was on Bronson, I believe, not too far. And they had free dinner every night, I think Monday through Friday. There was a lot of like perks, you know, to being a part of this program. I think they had free dinner for like all teens, uh, not just who were in the program. It was just like a, they just had, you know, food. They were feeding the homeless teens at the time in the Hollywood area. But um, yeah, no, I thought it was very helpful, especially the therapy. I remember making the therapist cry. I made every therapist cry. <laughs> I was like, are you supposed to be crying? <laughs> but I guess my life story is pretty tragic. So when you get into the details of it all, they just really, it was a lot for them to deal with. And they were just like, how are you standing? But like, you have to, and you have to use that. I think that's the best revenge. My best revenge towards anyone who hurt me emotionally or physically is success. It's just, they have to read an article about me in Forbes, you know, and I don't, that's revenge. It's better than hurting them and going to prison. So I think uh, I'll do that. Why do you think you were able to take, it sounds like, I know we're glossing over some of the details, but it sounds like some pretty trying experiences and roll with that and not let it beat you. I remember what I was going through. I mean, I'll just say it because I'm just not, I'm very open. Um, sexual abuse was what I went through primarily with my father. And I remember like when I was dealing with it and sitting outside my window and just being so like sad about it. And like, what did I do to deserve this? You know, how is this my life? And I was like, okay, well, you know, sitting here crying is not going to fix it. And I'm going to do what I can do. So I would like read autobiographies about other people who had like terrible lives, you know, um, Harriet Tubman and the girl who was in the attic, the Jewish girl who I'm oh, Anne so, Frank. yes, Anne Frank. Yes. Anne Frank. All these stories of, I guess, mostly women, even men, Malcolm X roots, you know, I would read autobiographies and biographies about real life situations. And then I would take note that like, it seemed like the worst their life was, the more they changed the world when they grew up, you know, like the more impact they made on the world when they got out of it. And I was like, I'm going to be one of those people. So like, I'm going through this because after I'm out, when I'm done, I'm going to understand what it means to be the victim, what it means to go through abuse, what it means to have no one and nothing and and just feel like you want to die. But I'm going to be able to help people. That's how I maintained and even still now how I maintain because I can really connect with people when they hear my story. I mean, I go to the high schools and in a high school class, like I'll talk about sexual abuse. And in that moment, I think I connect with all the kids, um, especially the girls and some of the girls. Like right now I'm at a school where they literally closed down the whole school on Monday because there was a brawl at the school and I'm coaching mostly girls and they listen to me, you know, and I think it's because they respect me and they know that, you know, I come from where they come from and I can relate to them because I've been there and they see themselves in me. Well, let's talk a little bit about, you know, at the end of this story, I'd love to talk a little bit more about um, Made in South LA and, and some of the work you're doing more explicitly, but just to rewind it. So you get into the Salvation Army program, you're able to, it sounds like kind of get your life maybe a little bit more stabilized. Mm -hmm. Tell me about District 2 and how that arose. So after the Salvation Army, I went into modeling and acting and it just kind of happened. Someone was like, hey, you want to do some music video? You know, I'll pay you 
200 bucks. And I was like, oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. You know, like 200 bucks, you know, I'm 18, I'm getting paid like $200 a day. And then it went to like $300 a day. And then I got an agent and it was like $500 a day. And then I got another agent and it was like a thousand dollars a day. And I was like, oh, this is good stuff. And that I started doing that as I was in the homeless program, the independent living program. And so once I got out of that program, I was pretty deep in modeling and acting. And I wanted to go to fashion school because I always wanted to be a fashion designer. I was always into it since I was a kid. So I went to FIDM, F-I-D-M, Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising in downtown LA. And when I got in, I was really sad to see that the technology in fashion really in most cases consists of Illustrator, Photoshop, and Microsoft Excel. Like, there's no fun, cool design technology. You know, <laughs> we're just drawing, and then maybe you know, we got Photoshop, we got Illustrator. That's, and what, that is our tech. <laughs> what year was this? It was like 2000, and it's still the same. You know, there's really no super cool technology that's being used. It's Illustrator, Photoshop, Microsoft Excel. On the pattern making side, like they have Gerber, and like they have some cool stuff. And there's some cool things that exist, but the industry hasn't adopted it. The fashion industry moves really slow. And so I was like, I'm going to make this software for design. And then I realized like, no one is going to use this. Like the industry just doesn't move that fast. So I was like, okay, let me make this platform where I can connect people. And like, we went through a whole different, many different types of versions, but in the end, it ended up being platform district2.co. We are a virtual garment district and we connect designers with factories. So like an indie designer can post a production project and then factories can bid on it. And then the designers can hire based off ratings, reviews, and price points. And that is something that solves the problem of, it can take years to find a good manufacturer. So we wanted to cut that down. And um, that's the tech company that I started. And I didn't know anyone in tech. I, at the time, wasn't even programming anymore. Um, I was solely in fashion design. So I had to, I found a CTO who was, owned a um, tech company in Ukraine and he was out here trying to make moves. And so we connected and started district two together and then got more partners. And, you know, it was a very cool experience. You know, it, it is a very cool experience. It's still amazing. It's like difficult, but then I don't know if you just set goals and you, you realize you, you hit one goal at a time, it, you just make it happen. Well, and what were some of the gaps in the process that you observed? So before District 2, if I was an up-and-coming fashion designer, what was the experience like to find manufacturing? To find manufacturing, you would have to hit up all the manufacturers and, you know, ask them each all the questions and see who could even do what you wanted. So that was like phone calls and emails and back and forth and back and forth. I remember literally using this platform for myself because... Once it was built, I could just post and then the people who could do it would bid on it. So I was like, oh my God, that's so awesome. It just saved me like two weeks of work, you know? <laughs> so there was that. And then also you have the issue of not knowing if their work is good. So ratings and reviews can help tell you about that if they're you know, good. And it gives them a sense of accountability, I believe, to do good work. And how did you get this scaled up? Because this sounds... This makes sense to me when you have an existing platform of manufacturers and a bunch of designers who are already using it. But when you go into that platform for the first time, there might be one manufacturer and it might have zero yeah, reviews. So like, how do you get that over that was, initial hump? We had to auto-populate. Like, literally, we put people on there because, again, we're talking about this industry that like vendor inertia is real. And if you don't know what vendor inertia is, that's like people don't want to move. People don't want to change. And so we had to just put them on there. Like, here you go. Here's your password. <laughs> Here's your username and password. And then people use them and respond. It wasn't easy. Okay. So it sounds like you were, you were populating the, the supplier side of the platform. And how about on the, on the designer side? Like, how did you get users? That wasn't as hard. Um, social media, Instagram was a big way because a lot of indie designers are on Instagram. So that way, that wasn't as difficult. And being a designer myself, I was in the circle. A lot of them were friends or people I knew, but it was easier to reach out to designers. And the designers are ready for something like that. 
Yeah, I was going to say, and it sounded like, you know, if before District 2, it was a real pain in the butt to, to find a designer. What's the process look like now? Is it, is it like magic and streamlined or is it still, you know, still reality or? It's still hard. <laughs> it's easier with, you mean on the platform or you mean in general? Like yeah, I guess, like, I guess talk about the transformation of using the platform versus before using the platform. What does it look like for somebody now? Oh, yeah. I mean, using it is just a lot faster. So you save a whole lot of time and energy. I think one of the things that is my biggest challenge with the platform now is the ethical component. They're like, how do I know this factory doesn't have kids chained to the desk? You know, and to be honest, that's something we're working on. Um, because how do you know? You know, and as much as I've even tried to partner with other organizations that do it, but then I realized that they really as I really investigate in what they're doing, they really don't know. <laughs> so being honest, 100% honest, we don't know. We don't know what the factories are doing abroad. And if you go visit them, of course, they're going to be on the up and up when you go visit them. So that was probably the biggest challenge of everything. I mean, that's the biggest challenge of every piece of clothing you wear. You don't know how ethically it was made, how much pollution it caused in the world, or who made it and how. So because I'm so invested in human kindness and the care of the planet, it's caused some um, grief in my life, I would say. Well, yeah. And it it sounds like, because I could imagine that it would be really challenging, as you're saying, to design a system where you can really evaluate the ethics of a company. You really have to make that almost your your full value proposition of like, we are the people who evaluate the ethics of a company. But it sounds like even the people who have maybe pursued that as their explicit strategy aren't doing, in your opinion, a great job. Exactly. It's very difficult. You know, unless they start, there are some that they have their own factories and they give, you know, better wages and things. So those are helpful and you can just try to partner with those type of factories. So that was kind of like, we're in the midst of like kind of a 360 as far as our business model and, and making sure we're sustainable and working with sustainable factories. Yeah. And so you wear a lot of hats and we'll, we'll talk about a few more in a few minutes, but what is your current involvement with District 2? I'm CEO. I'm CEO of District 2 right now. Have you ever been in a meeting where your team disagreed about the best course of action? Maybe you didn't know which message best resonates with your audience or exactly who your customers are, or maybe which features they want you to build. Customer research from an impartial third party can offer the clarity you need. That's why PhD Insights offers Customer Research Delivered. Customer Research Delivered uses a five-step process to apply customer research to answer your pressing business problem. Within four weeks, they'll design, host, deploy, and analyze a quantitative study so you can make better decisions to keep your business growing. Learn more about Customer Research Delivered by visiting phd-insights.com. That's phd-insights.com. So, you know, you talked about your involvement in local communities. Can you tell me a little bit about Made in South LA? So Made in South LA, a group of four South LA residents, we started in 2014. Initially, it was in collaboration with District 2, um, my tech company, where we hired uh, students from the community to work for us with like social media, some light coding, uh, basic admin work. And it kind of evolved from there to what it is now, which is more like a kind of like a dev shop academy where we train students to code by building websites for the local community. We're a project of Vermont Slauson Economic Development Corporation. So they're like our umbrella company. And through them, we're able to, uh, I mean, get into so many, open so many doors. We're, We're in schools doing boot camps. They have a building, a 10,000 square foot building, which we are all working diligently to turn into a tech center. And um, our primary partners are the Annenberg Foundation and Pledge LA. And um, yeah, you know, we we just want to change the economic, the current economic situation of the community to offer training in high level tech jobs that makes money. So it's kind of the, the plan. No, and I, my husband and I were talking about, I guess, economics broadly earlier today. And, you know, I had posed the question, if, if you're working 25 hours a week part-time at Target, what is the way for you to get 
out? Like what's the promotion level look like? You know, how do you move right. from there? And it right. sounds like the Made in South LA approach is really focusing on training. It's focused on training. And, and, you know, I'm no economist, but um, I do work in economic development and um, I have a economists around me. Um, and we believe that training is a key to economic growth, um, entrepreneurialism and training, because entrepreneurialism creates more jobs. And then let's say if a bunch of startups came out of our tech center and did well, they could hire our developers, um, they could hire our engineers, our IT consultants, you know, and those people from the community could start to make money to where, when, not if, definitely gentrification is happening right on our block. I used to live on that block where our building is, so it's way different than even three years ago. So gentrification is not only coming, it's there. And so in order to fight the ill effects, which is being displaced, we think that one of the the best ways to fight it is to help existing businesses to grow that will hire within and from the community. Yeah. So can you tell me a little bit more about what the program looks like today? So it sounds like in addition to the training side where you're teaching people a little bit more about technology and how to do that work, it sounds like it's also designed to support existing local businesses. It is. So that's what Vermont Slauson, via CDC, that's what they do. So via CDC has been around for about 40 years and I'm the lead tech consultant now um, with Vermont Slauson. And they've been helping businesses in the community to grow for 40 years. I think last year alone, they loaned out $5 million to, um, you know, to help South LA businesses. And so um, this is just one component of what they've been doing for years. And they brought me on board because I'm all things techie and I have good connections in um, Silicon Beach area with a lot of the tech companies to hire out our students as we train them. And I'm good kind of bringing together a lot of the nonprofits and they already have existing relationships with existing nonprofits because there's not, I mean, Missile isn't the only nonprofit in all of South LA that's working to, to bring tech into the community and to train the community in technology. So if we kind of all work together, you know, we'll, we'll go farther. We can make better moves, bigger moves. Yeah. And not to jump ahead to a question I usually like to ask at the end, but as you mentioned, there, there's more than one player trying to get tech into South LA. What do you feel like other companies are maybe doing wrong or what is an approach that you're excited that you're taking to address this problem differently? Well, I think the fact that billions of dollars a year are spent on diversity and inclusion in tech in America, yet the amount of underrepresented minorities in tech has not increased like in decades. I think that is, that's a social injustice, honestly. It's like, where's all that money going? So I feel like a lot of the boots on the ground organizations and nonprofits such as Vermont Slauson Economic Development Center, boots on the ground, you know, making moves, making changes, changing lives are overlooked when it comes to funding. And so we are a group of just really dedicated soldiers just out there making moves. But a lot of the funding is going to just talking about changing, talking about bringing about diversity in tech. Um, I literally had a lawyer friend of mine and we literally tracked down where some, a specific amount of $40 million went. And that's again, a whole nother podcast, but I'll tell you that money went to uh, dinners and conferences and catering and consultants and students and minorities and women did not see a lot of them. A very small amount of that $40 million by a specific tech company was actually designated for the people that it was supposed to help. And so that's what's happening. I mean, a lot of the money is just spent on talking about diversity in tech. I mean, how much money does Silicon Valley spend on their conferences about tech and inclusion when if you spend 150000 on one conference, how many diverse candidates could you have trained? Yeah, so it sounds like you see a lot less of the talking approach are a big supporter of this training model. And you hear that a lot from tech, right? It's like, we would, we would hire more candidates, but there just aren't any people like that in our pipeline. Yeah. And that's not 
necessarily true either. I mean, all our volunteers are people of color who work in tech, who have difficulties getting jobs. But I think a lot of it is people want to hire referrals and, you know, that's within their circle. And if the circle is white male, that's going to continue to be your circle. So in order for us to infiltrate the circle, you know, like I would say I've successfully kind of got into Silicon Beach area where now if I refer a candidate to my associate who owns a tech company, they're going to take that. They're going to say, you know, Cassie knows her shit. She says this developer is bomb. I'm going to hire him or her. And so that's starting to happen. You know, we are um, starting to refer, like our volunteers are getting better pay um, because of personal referrals within our circle that have connections to higher tech companies. I mean, it is who you know. It really is. So a lot of people are trained and great and amazing, but they can't get their foot in the door because they don't know someone. Well, and I'd love to back up and just learn a little bit more about the the program as it's currently structured. So let's say I'm obviously a South LA urban youth and I just got into Misla. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, no, but, but tell me, what, what is someone who's coming into the program? Like, what does it look like? What can they expect? What are some of the program details? So specific with web development, because I'm a programmer and I understand how it works, we really want to get you working as soon as possible. So we have four-week boot camps. And within the four weeks, you'll be building your own website and then building websites for local businesses. And we have student stipends. So we'll pay the students based on however many websites they can finish within the time frame of the boot camp. And then we might hire them for ongoing boot camps where they can be like teacher's assistants. The ones that are 14 and over can get like you know, hourly pay and actually get paid. We, we've gotten grants that will pay um, student salaries on an hourly basis, which are pretty cool. And then we're well, just- Well, actually, I'd love to just stop you right there because you yeah. just said so many things that I'd love to unpack, right? Okay. So, so first, one is that it's, it's project-based. So just like we talked about earlier, how when you learn how to code, it was to make, make something, right? It was yeah. to end up with something and not just- to learn where to put periods in this right. syntax thing that doesn't sound interesting. Right. Um, so it sounds like at the end of a month, they know how to code a website. Yeah. I mean, they know how to alter the code. They, if you give them a blank screen and they have to figure everything out, they don't know how to do that in 30 days. You know, that's a whole... Which is fair. Right. So like our expert volunteers and developers can build something, but they can alter it. So they can now customize like a template. So if they have a template, they can now customize this template for, for clients. Um, well, the other thing that I thought was interesting in there is that you're, you're paying the students to complete these projects. So they're doing work. They're working. It gives them a sense of achievement. Like you're legit developers. Um, once you get that hourly, t- you got your first check in the mail, you, are, you can put that on your resume. You were a developer for MISLA, made in South LA, and you built websites. Well, and that's part, of, that's part of the challenge, right, of starting out in any business is, <laughs> you know, you don't have any experience, so you can't get a job, but you can't get a job unless you have experience. So to the extent that they can demonstrate, like, look, I completed this set of projects, just showing work, even if they haven't, you know, worked in a traditional full-time role can be really valuable. Exactly. Exactly. And so we're moving, we're taking that, we've pretty much perfected that kind of model and using that now with animation and gaming, YouTube um, creators, content creators and social media. And just again, other ways where um, young people in the community can get paid. Um, There's a lot of businesses in South LA that can hire them that can, will, and want to hire them. So there's that, which, which, helps the businesses grow, you know, so that's the economic component of our like little academic ecosystem that we're creating. But then there's, yeah, you know, they can go out and make six figures once they really know what they're doing at uh, some major tech company. And and we have other partners that I can't mention now because we're, we haven't signed, sealed and delivered, but um, other partners that are really doing big things like across the country. And that I believe it's, if it's already been done, like why reinvent the wheel? I'm all about partnerships and Vermont Slauson is all about partnerships and just bringing in people that are really rocking and rolling and sharing the resources, which is we have a building, you know, if we get funding, okay, we can put our funding together. <clears throat> Instead of fighting over the resources, like let's, let's share and divide and conquer. 
Well, and I think we talked about this before we we started recording today, but can you tell me about who is teaching the students? Like, what does that look like? It's actual, like, a lot of the instructors own a startup and startups, when they start up, a lot of times they have very, what's the word, flexible schedules. So they have flexible schedules and they're able to kind of like volunteer for pay. I mean, it's a little extra cash. A lot of times startups have no money, you know? when they start. So um, they're like, okay, cool. Extra cash, do something good for the world, all is well. So some of them are startups. Some of them are working and can only work on the weekends or nights, but all are involved in the industry. So all work and and are very well trained in whatever, like in animation. Um, We partnered with Liel Sullivan, who was like the second Black animator at Warner Brothers and so he has, you know, a plethora of knowledge and information on animation and he knows how to get a job clearly and work in animation. So like those are the type of people that are running the classes, people who've been there, done that and know how to get our students there as well. Yeah. And are you finding that the students are, are getting placed after? So, I mean, again, like you're saying, this is a boot camp. It's 30 days. It's not, it's not a four-year college degree, but are you finding that it is helping people get the jobs that you want them to get? Um, right now, who's getting the jobs are the volunteers, actually, um, because the volunteers, they're super trained and underpaid a lot of times. Again, a whole other podcast on that. But so we're able to kind of place them and get them better pay and better, better jobs. The students are getting hired by like the small businesses through us. So the students get hired through MISLA, where really like the business hires MISLA to make a website and get hired that way. Like we hire the students basically. So until the students are fully trained, again, they've only, you know, you're not going to be some badass programmer in three months. You know, programming is not a game. It's, I'm not here to pretend like it's easy and simple. It is intense. It's complicated. JavaScript is no joke. It's going to take them a while to be able to go get that six figures. But I was a part of a dev academy called Code District, um, which I got a scholarship to go to. And I believe everyone in that class is placed and working. And it was a six month boot camp, you know, and that's, they're one of our partners. I wonder, so the model you're describing makes a lot of sense, right? It's like, if the problem is that there is a lack of talent in the pipeline, and I think that would be true broadly, maybe not just for minority communities, but why don't you see some of these companies, like larger companies, like the Googles or the Microsofts, putting more of an effort on the on maybe the training or boot camp side. Because like you're saying, it feels like it would be a reasonable program to run where you do something for six months for training and then either you get directly hired or a certain number of people get directly hired or you get hooked up with other kinds of referrals to be hired. You know what? Your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> I find it hard to believe that with all the brilliant minds in technology, no one has thought like... No one at Google is like, hey, guys, why don't we just sponsor a boot camp? Like, why don't we just sponsor 20 people from South Central Los Angeles? We do a competition or whatever. We sponsor 20 or 200. You know, we sponsor 200 students and we pay for their, them to go to the biggest, baddest boot camp in the land. Like, I don't know why that's not a thing. And again, a lot of money is being given but that's not what's happening. You know, that like legit, it just, just give it directly to the student so that, or not even the student, just pay for them to take this, you know, these boot camps, pay for them to get the training and you will see an increase in diversity. It's difficult. We're not working on the same playing field and able to go to these boot camps and pay the 16 or 20 or $30,000 that it costs to take these boot camps, let alone not work because you can't work. I mean, it's, it's nearly impossible to have a real job while in these like really quick boot camps because it's like study, study, study all day, all night. So with that, I'm ready to turn to our think a little different round of questions. What's something you've changed your mind about in the last few years? I would say commercialism and consumerism. You know, I'm from fashion. I'm from the fashion industry. And again, that is something that's been eating away at me as far as like, what am I doing with my legacy? What am I doing with my life? You know, I have this startup that is all about fashion and designers and stuff. And 
I've changed my mind. You know, I, I think that we don't need more stuff. Fashion is not what makes you happy and feel beautiful. And that's why I've kind of shifted my focus over to technology and what we can learn and build from that. And yeah, some, a lot of people are going to build consumer facing products and apps and whatnot, but a lot of people are going to build things to change the world and do something good. I think that's the biggest change I've had. Are there other ways that that's manifesting just besides your, your shifting of your work priorities? Um, I don't buy stuff, you know, I'm just like, I have so much. First of all, when I started my tech company, I sold everything. I sold my car, my house, and you know, the struggle was real. Like we, me and my co-founder lived off ramen and God knows water. And when we finally started to make money, I was just like, oh man, I'm so happy without all that stuff. I had a three bedroom house. I moved into a studio, you know, like why did I have so much stuff, you know, closets full of clothes. And I've just come to realize that that stuff is not, you know, cars and bags and shoes is, is not what's going to make us happy. And it's bringing us down in reality because we're trying to, you know, keep up with our lifestyle and we think that's what's making us happy. And I've just come to realize that giving back and making a positive change in the world around me is what brings me happiness. And, you know, my friends, my family, my kids just kind of being there for the, and then just self-time. I've taken some time for myself to just be by myself and hang out and read books. And yeah, so that has changed. What's a view that's widely held by your peers that you just aren't totally convinced by? I am not convinced that Jesse Smollett staged his own hate crime. (laughs) That would be my, at the moment, like we're all obsessed with the Jesse Smollett attack, right? So I'm, yeah, I'm and, just, and just for the sake of um, posterity, so we're recording this the very end of February 2019. And yeah, Jesse Smollett's recently, I guess, filed a police report saying that he was assaulted. It looked like a hate crime specifically. And then in the weeks following, Chicago PD has come out and said, it looks like there's evidence that he may have staged the attack. Yeah, I have so many questions. I'm like, really? Like, who writes a check? You know, I mean, there's so many questions. That's, you know, actually, like, that's actually a good question. <laughs> a crime, guys. Like, and who takes an Uber to commit a crime? Like, come on, let's just, let's just think about this. Everyone, let's just stop and pause. I'm not saying, you know, it's true, but let's just stop and think about it. Let's just think about it. It sounds like your skepticism is that there's so much evidence that how could anybody be that dumb? <laughs> how can any, right. Like, did he write for a hate crime in the memo of the check? You know, I'm just like, come on, guys. Let's just question, you know, that it looks weird. I don't know. None of any side, no side makes sense, really. Like CPD sets it up. That makes no sense. The brothers do it in, out of what? Just because they hate him so much? That makes no sense. He stages his own hate crime. That makes no sense. Like none of it makes sense, but something has happened. <laughs> and I really want to know. I have never been into to like politics and cases and reality TV, but like, this is the greatest reality TV show of all time. And I'm here for it. And I really want to know what happened. (laughs) But everyone thinks he did it. And I don't personally, or I don't know. So people who learned about Made in South LA today or Misla, what can they do if they want to help contribute to your program? They can go onto our website, misla.org. They can sign up for our newsletter, become a part of the boot camp. They can be a volunteer, instruct us. If they currently have a program, call us, partner with us. We are not your competition. I don't understand why there is competition when the whole purpose is to bring about economic growth and advancement in our community. So if we work together, it's better. So let's work together. How can we partner? You can always donate. You know, again, org. we have a donate section to help us pay for, you know, computers and instructors. I think one of the hardest things to pay for is instructors. There's a lot of grants that pay for like computers and stuff, but they don't seem to realize that people have to run these computers <laughs> and we do need to pay the people because it's hard to get someone to work for 40 hours, even a month for free. And it shouldn't be when we're training the next greatest minds. 
So yeah, you know, donations so that we can help pay our instructors would be awesome. So can you tell me a little bit about the partners that you've been working with? Sounds like you got some great ones. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, I mentioned Vermont Slauson, Economic Development Corporation, Annenberg, so supportive, Pledge LA, Plug In South LA. Um, we're doing tech conferences and have more plans for the future. Positive Results Corporation, Limitless Academy, Brotherhood Crusade, Yo Watts, Steam Coders, Black Women in Tech, of course. All the people that are, you know, working to to bring about some economic growth in, in South LA. If I forgot you, I'm sorry, but I, that's all I could think of right now. But yes, shout out to all the partners, to all the community partners who we've been working with to make some changes. And, you know, I am grateful for you because community service is, it takes a special type of person, you know, especially when you're skilled and you can go work somewhere else and make a whole lot more money and have a whole lot less to deal with as far as, you know, this is a, this can be very emotionally draining because these are people's lives that we're talking about. And, you know, a lot of the students that we work with are really, they, they legit have PTSD. You know, they're, they are homeless. They have abusive parents. They have alcoholic parents, you know, they're going through it. And so it takes a very special type of person to work with those type of individuals in the community. And I honor everyone that is involved in it. And where can people find you online or learn more about you online? At misla.org. And our Twitter handle is at the real misla, also our Instagram. And we're on Facebook. And how about you personally, Cassie, on online? I am at InstaBets on Instagram. I'm Cassie Betts on Twitter. Actually, if you just go to misla.org, all my social media is right there under my picture on the team section. Cassie Betts, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If so, I invite you to subscribe to Innovation for All on iTunes or your favorite podcasting platform. Thank you to our producer, Nia Taylor, our audio engineer, Dave Visaya, and Glorianne O'Kay, who compiles our show notes. You can view show notes from this and every episode at innovationforallcast.com.